Hey everyone, I'm Andy Petronic, and this is the Whole Life Challenge Podcast. It's the place we connect with extraordinary people, ones who think differently, who have risen to the top of their field, who have vast knowledge, experience, and insights to share, as well as incredible stories to tell. They are also the ones who have figured out a way to take their life's experience and turn it into something that truly makes a difference in the world for others. These are their stories. It's Andy Petronic, and welcome back to another episode of the Whole Life Podcast. Happy New Year! It's the first episode of 2018. By this time, it's the second week, and maybe some of your New Year's resolutions are in full swing. Maybe they're not. I'll tell you what, there's never been a better opportunity to engage and sign up for the Whole Life Challenge, so I'm going to remind you of that a couple times in this introduction. But the first thing I want to tell you is my guest today is unbelievable. His name is Chris Kesser. I'll tell you a little bit more about him uh, in a second. I'm really excited about some of our upcoming guests. Next week, we've got Patrick McEwen. He's a breathing expert, and he's got a, believe it or not, you're, this is going to sound crazy, but you breathe too much. Sound a little bizarre? That's one of the things Patrick and I talk about in the podcast next week. We've got Jill Miller coming up, who's been one of our movement specialists in the Whole Life Challenge, and she is a kind of a global phenom in the world of mobility, yoga. She started teaching yoga way back when I started uh, doing some power yoga myself with Brian Kest, so we have that in common. And then I've got Dr. Jason Fung coming up, who's an expert in intermittent fasting. Um, He's a kidney doctor the name of that just blew out of my head the name of kidney doctors but dr jason fung is coming up and then drew logan and then the founder of zero shoes steven sashin i've got some really really great guests coming up so you've got that to look forward to uh listen more on chris kesser guys this may chris may have the most important message of our time it's not it's it's not that small it's not it's i'm not i'm not kidding i'm not exaggerating uh in his book unconventional medicine he takes on the kind of the debilitating debacle of our healthcare system and puts it into a perspective that makes you look at it and go oh my god we're, we're heading for ruin, literally. The United States is heading for financial ruin if we continue down the path we're on with conventional medicine and conventional treatments of chronic disease. Chris is he's the founder of the Kresser Institute. He's the co-director of the California Center for Functional Medicine. He's the creator of ChrisKesser.com and the New York Times best-selling author of The Paleo Cure. He's one of the most respected clinicians and educators in the fields of functional medicine and ancestral health. He's trained over 400 practitioners around the world in his unique approach. He was also named one of the top 100 most influential people in health and fitness by greatest.com. And his blog is one of the top rated natural health websites in the world. 
I've already mentioned his book on conventional medicine. We're going to talk all about that. We're going to talk. We're going to get into details about the magnitude of the problem. We're going to get into some of his uh, recommendations for how we can turn it around. His his strategies for changing this. It doesn't have to be this way. He also gets personal and gives us some insight into how he lives his life. And one of my favorite parts is at the very end, he gives us his uh, the vacation autoresponder he uses to help ease his mind from the onslaught of emails that could await him in his inbox when he gets back from vacation. So tune in for that. It's really, really cool. It's really good. Um, yeah. So stay tuned about five minutes. We'll be with Chris. Um, I want to, I don't want to leave out fan of the week. Here's a funny story guys. So about a month ago, I started offering free t-shirts for anybody that listens to the podcast, uh, for which I have read the fan of the week review of the podcast. And I had, I I tried it for four weeks. It was an experiment and I hadn't heard from anyone. So I figured, ah, you know, it was an experiment worth running, but nobody did it. So I didn't offer it again. And of course, as soon as I don't do it, I have, I had a person email me with their, with their address. We're going to send them, send her a gift certificate. Um, but I thought it was really funny. Of course, as soon as I'd given up, somebody emails me and says, Hey, I heard the podcast and I want my t-shirt. So if you want to be fan of the week, and you want your review read on air, and you want to get a free Whole Life Challenge t-shirt, then write a review for the podcast. The link to get to iTunes to write a review is bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash W-L-C dash podcast. And you have to navigate to ratings and reviews and then leave your, not just ratings, but you have to go, you have to actually write a review. Uh, the review of the week or the fan of the week this week is by C gigs. And he says, or she says, uh, natural. Thanks for providing such interesting topics and guests. Andy and Mike in this one is a natural. He is obviously and genuinely interested in his guests. One gets the feeling he is researching his next life adventure. So thanks, C Gigs. I really appreciate you listening, and I will send you a T-shirt. Just let me know you heard this. Uh, shoot me an email at podcast at wholelifechallenge.com, and uh, we'll get that sent out to you. I'll send you a gift certificate for one, um, and then you can choose your color, choose your style, all that stuff. So uh, we're going to get on with it. Now, Guess what? It's the beginning of the year. Guess what that also means? We're about to start the next Whole Life Challenge. It starts on January 20th, and there's never been a better time to sign up. Of course, it's best to sign up with at least one friend or somebody you know. If you don't know anybody in the Whole Life Challenge, you can sign up and find someone, but you want to be around other people in this. Getting the support of your teammates and your friends and your family is really, really, really helpful along this journey. So, um... And that's how we keep this podcast free for now. Uh, we don't have any sponsors. Uh, the whole the whole life challenge supports the podcast. So um, for now, we're thinking about maybe bringing on some sponsors, but for now, we're not. And um, so be it. 
So um, if remember, if you want the f- a complete set of show notes, go to wholelifechallenge.com forward slash podcast. And um, if you're listening and have a question or you want to hit me up about anything, podcast at wholelifechallenge.com. Um, you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at Andy Petronic. L- would love to hear from you. Uh, I'm going to stop rambling and get on with the show. Bring in Chris Kesser. I want you guys to listen, take notes, listen hard. This is a really, really, really important podcast. Probably my most important podcast of the, that I've ever done in terms of the message that we need to hear about the condition of our healthcare system. So enjoy Chris Kesser and um, take it away. Chris Kesser, welcome to the Whole Life Challenge podcast. Oh, Andy, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Your name is one of the hardest names. I, I mess up your name constantly. It's I think it's the R and the Kressler, maybe, or I don't know. Is that, is that a common yeah, thing? Kessler, Kressler. A lot of people want to put an L in it. Yes. Um, I think there's a vodka. It's <laughs> Kessler or Kressler or something, so I get that. Because you drank a lot of vodka. Uh, are, you, are, you, yeah. are you related to the vodka family? No, I'm not. Right, um, right. Yeah. So it is what it is. You know, that's how names are. That it, yeah. My, my name is Petronic and most people pronounce it Petronac because I think right. they see the P E T and they put it together as pet and then they don't know what to do with the rest. So it's just Petronic. Um, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I always have to tell them, no, it's like electronic Petronic and, uh, you know, there we go. But, um, that's not why you're on the podcast. We're not here to talk about names. We're talking about here to talk about a lot more important things like your book, unconventional medicine and, and your, your, your background and how that got started. Could you give everybody, I mean, I know a lot because I've read the book and I've referred it to a bunch of people, but, uh, there are a lot of people out there that don't know anything about you or the book. So could you give Mm -hmm. a little reader's digest version of, of kind of your place in all of this and how it got to the formulation of the book. And I'll, I'll, you know, I'll ask questions as they come up and uh, we can just mm-hmm. go from there. Yeah, sure. Um, I was healthy kid and athlete all the way through high school, paid a lot of attention to my health, uh, more from a performance perspective, you know, and, and athletics, um, didn't have any health problems. And then my twenties, I, uh, had a, a strong wanderlust and I quit my job and went and traveled around the world for about a year and a half. And I got really sick in Indonesia and very long story short, that evolved into a decade long journey back to health. Um, Chris, what which, kind of sports did you play? Like how athletic were you? Were you like varsity uh, cross country runner? I played, I, I, I surfed, but I, I played basketball and then I was uh, recruited to play at UC Davis in Santa Clara. Wow. Um, which were schools that frankly, I wouldn't have chosen to go to were it not for basketball. And so I had decided to, to choose a school that I really wanted to go to, um, regardless of whether I could play basketball there, that that's kind of the decision that I made as I was going into college. And I, after visiting UC Davis and Santa Clara, not, nothing wrong with those schools. If anyone went to those schools, <laughs> I, I, I just, Kenny Kane, sorry, not, sorry, Kenny, they, Kenny, went, my friend, Kenny Kane went to UC Davis. He run, he owns CrossFit okay. Los Angeles and they, they weren't at the top of my list. Right. Anyway, so no, that, totally. you know, did, that's a very personal decision. Um, and I ended up deciding to go to uh, UC Berkeley, which was on the top of my list. And then I figured maybe I can walk on, you know, it was definitely at that time, a, a more competitive, uh, they were D one and, you know, Santa Clara, um, 
that was right around the time that Santa Clara got to the semifinals of, of the um, final four. They were pretty good, but they wow. were still uh, lower D1. And then um, UC Davis was either upper D2 or lower D1. Right. But when I got to Berkeley to walk on, the person who was playing my position um, was Jason Kidd. So... <laughs> Yeah, that, no, no competition uh, that there. Out. Right, <laughs> totally. <you> <laughs> so I played, uh, who I had played against in, um, there's a league called Slam and Jam, which is a, like an all-star league for high school kids. And I was on the Southern California Slam and Jam team and we played the Northern California Slam and Jam team, which he was on. And my claim to fame in the basketball world was that Jason Kidd only scored 42 against on me. Like I held him to 42, which, you know, at the time he was averaging like 60 or 70 points a game. So it is. Like, cool. I, I held him to 42. Wow. You know, great job. <laughs> um, right. Right. So, so, you know, then I play, I just, I didn't play on the team at Berkeley. I just, you know, uh, played uh, intramurals, which is fairly competitive there, but I, yeah. I, you know, pretty much since then I've not played basketball seriously. I've, I've gone into other areas. And so you were, I mean, you were at a pretty high level. I mean, this is not a, you were not a, um, just a weekend warrior. You know, I just kind of wanted to no. paint that picture, you know? No, no, I was, uh, you know, we had a coach that came into our school, our high school when I was a freshman who was a, had been an assistant coach at USC. And so he totally turned the program upside down. You know, we, we were like doing things that I think very few high school programs were doing, you know, watching a lot of videos and, you know, recruit, like we had scouts that were going and scouting all the teams and we had a nutrition program, which wow. was, you know, one of my first, like all the basketball players, you knew who was on the team because they were carrying coolers around the school wow. with their lunch that they had packed. And this is what, what and year, what years were this, was this? This was, so I, I graduated from high school in 92. So this was 88 to 92. Yeah, I mean, that's way ahead of its time, for goodness sake. Way ahead of its time. Yeah. I mean, it was a serious program. And uh, for better or for worse, I mean, it, it was, right. there were some th parts about it that were, I think, too extreme for, for that point in, in a lot of kids' lives. But uh, it, it was my first kind of interest in nutrition as, um, as a way of of you know, improving performance and health and well-being. It's not, I wasn't looking at that at that time as a way of resolving chronic illness, you know, or even preventing right. illness. Cause that wasn't what I was you know, dealing with. It yeah. was like, how do I fuel my body? Like my freshman year, I was playing on the freshman team and the varsity. So I was practicing from two to four on the freshman team. And then I would practice from four to six 30 wow. on the varsity team. So, you know, by the end of that year, I was pretty run down and I was tr trying to find ways of optimizing my performance. So, uh, yeah, then I, I traveled, I was surfing. All, I went on like a year long surf trip around the world. I was, I started, Actually, in Thailand, I was studying Thai massage and meditation. I did a 30-day meditation retreat in the jungle there. Wow. Uh, so that was the non-surf part of it. And then I studied traditional Thai massage in a Lahu Hill Tribe village there for a couple of months with my teacher, meditation teacher, who was also a massage teacher. So that was a pretty big departure from, you know, what my life had been up until then. What do you, I, I'm sorry, I didn't ask. Um, what did you study in college? Well, you know, it was Berkeley, so I, I studied. I did a very Berkeley thing and made up my own major, which <laughs> they actually allow you to do there. Right. And right. what you basically you, you can put together classes from three different disciplines and then write a thesis mm -hmm. on it. And so the three different departments were rhetoric, 
information studies because this was the dawn of the internet and education. And I wrote my paper, my thesis on the social and cultural implications of the internet. Wow. Um, now keep in mind, this was 1996. So, right. um, you know, I had one of the first websites, I think in 1993, which was like a gray page with a blue link and, you know, picture on, <laughs> on yeah, there. Right. That was right. like as fancy as it got. This was like the time of Netscape just, you know, coming onto the scene and World well, Wide and then, Web. And then there, was, then there was AOL, you've got mail. AOL, I mean, yeah. most people at this time didn't know what email was, didn't right. have an email account, didn't know what the web was. Um, so I wrote my paper on like how this internet is gonna transform society basically. And I got, I got some things right and I got some things wrong. Um, I, I argued that it would exacerbate the the, you know, the distinction between the haves and the have nots that, you know, there'd be a sort of up Uber, you know, class that had access to the internet and people who didn't, and that would further, you know, create a further divide. And I think fortunately the internet has proven to be, um, more accessible than I yeah. thought it would be initially, but anyways, it was fun. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, so then I was traveling, surfing. I, from Thailand, I went to Indonesia, uh, which for anyone who's a surfer who's listening to this knows is a is quite a mecca um, for surfers. It's you know an archipelago that's very uh, warm water and some of the best surf spots anywhere in the world. Yeah. Uh, it's also you know developing country and um, Things like sanitation, which we take for granted here in the developed world, are 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 still lacking, especially in a lot of the parts of, of Indonesia where I was outside of the cities. I was in a little village on an island called Sumbawa, which is um, a couple islands away from Bali, which is the one most people are familiar with. Yeah. And um, at the time, there were some. Um, we were surfing the spot. There was me and some other couple, some Australian people, guys, and a few others all surfing the spot. And we, uh, we all, almost all of us got sick. And we, after doing some investigation, we figured out that what had happened is that some local people in the village, there was like a stagnant pool of water where cows were milling around and defecating. And they yeah. dug a trench between that and the river mouth. Right. And so that stagnant contaminated water went, was carried out by the river right into the lineup of the surf spot. So Great. it wasn't from drinking water or eating food. It was just being in the ocean yeah. with that contaminated water going in, you know, my eyes and ears and you know, orifices. Sure. Right. Maybe even yeah. swallowing some, I mean, it, you know, probably swallowed not... some. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I was extremely ill for three or four days. I, I was delirious. I don't really remember much of those days actually. And, um, my, my sort of uh, person I was staying with, the Australian guy I'd met there who wasn't affected, had some antibiotics that he gave me that brought me back from the brink. Um, but then, and I continued to travel for about nine months after that. But as I went, I just was getting sicker and sicker hmm. and had to actually, I was originally planning on being gone for a couple of years, um, much to my parents' dismay. And, of course. <laughs> but, um, I had to cut it short and uh, I went back to Australia at first to try to figure it out um, and then home to the US and then it, that just turned into, as I said before, you know, 10 years of 
exploration and um, banging my head against the wall and you know trying to figure everything out um, which fortunately I was eventually able to to do I you know it's always hard people say oh did you did you get back to where you were before and I say no because that was 10 years later <laughs> and yeah I don't even know what you know where I would have been if I hadn't gone there in 10 years obviously I'm not going to get back to where I was you know, 10 years ago in my health, that's, that's never going to happen, no matter, regardless of something like this transpiring. But I, I got back to the place where I could live my life and work full time and enjoy life and my family. And, you know, prior to that, at various times during that 10 year period, I was totally incapacitated. You know, I was, I was disabled, really, I couldn't work, I was in excruciating pain, most of my days. And, didn't really know what my life was going to look if I was going to have a normal life at all. So it was and pretty. There was no one really to turn to back then. I mean, there was no there was no like reference point was, or people that no, did what you're I mean, doing. What there you might do have now. been like five functional medicine <laughs> providers. I didn't know what that was. I'd never right. heard of that phrase. Um, how how did so, you and you and the, there was nobody that was going to do this for you? Like you had to you had to dig this. No, stuff up, I, mean, right? the, I mean, you, the, the doctors I saw were, were caring and kind and they were trying to help, but right. even by their own admission, they were just like, look, you know, we, we don't know what to do with you. Like you, yeah. you don't fit the, you know, the mold that, that we were trained, uh, you know, pa- the kind of patient we were trained to treat. And, you know, some doctors did suggested I go back to Australia because that's closer to Indonesia that they deal with these kinds of problems more. And I did do that. I actually flew back to Australia. And, hmm. um, so I, I probably saw 30 different doctors over the course of that wow. you know, initial five year period. And I was committed to getting better, but it just, you know, I wasn't able to get help from that side of, you know, that corner of, of the medical world. But I did see a lot of, you know, so-called alternative practitioners like uh, an acupuncturist and Chinese medicine specialist who, you know, who was actually able to help me more than anything else, which I think is what influenced me to go back and eventually study Chinese medicine and acupuncture myself. Um, And I was also, you know, I was exploring every diet you can possibly imagine. You know, at that time, it was really, I mean, this was like, the late nineties. Right. So low fat was still the, the craze. And, and so, you know, vegetarian, vegan, macrobiotic, vegan, I was macrobiotic vegan for a while and even apprenticed with a macrobiotic vegan chef. Um, you know, I tried all those kinds of diets and then eventually, uh, was in a bookstore and, 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 and encountered this book, called nourishing traditions which oh, you yeah. might be familiar with yep, sally course. fallon's book yeah. um the western price style of of nutrition and it you know immediately resonated with me and i was curious but i was also a little bit you know just kind of uh i didn't have my hopes up because i tried so many other diets and I, and none of them had really helped so um i think it took me a little while to get a, you know to to fully give that a shot and embrace it. But when I did, I started to see really good results. And then how did you know the results were um, not just from acupuncture? Like, how did you differentiate the two results? I wasn't, I wasn't doing acupuncture consistently at the time when I started that, um, the acupuncture I had seen acupuncture. I saw that inspired me was in Boulder when I was kind of traveling around the Southwest, you know, looking, you know, kind of on a spiritual psycho spiritual emotional journey to see if i could figure something out that was had eluded me before 
And so by this time I was back in California, actually I was in British Columbia uh, on Vancouver Island um, when I saw that book. Huh. And so I started eating that way and um, felt better. And then I intuitively just felt like taking out the grains and legumes in the Western price approach. They do permit grains and legumes, but they prepare them extensively. They soak the grains or they soak the, the, the legumes to make them more digestible. But I just felt that they, those weren't working for me either. Mm -hmm. So I took those out and then I was on a, a, a paleo diet, you know, without you, calling it paleo. It didn't, it I had didn't no exist. idea what paleo was at that time. I mean, I don't think it existed then, did it? And when, what year was it this? Did. I think, no, I mean, I think Rob Wolf and Lauren Cordain and some of the earlier people who were involved were, were talking about it, but it's certainly, I mean, if you said paleo to a hundred people on the street, a hundred people would say, what the heck are you talking about? Right, Whereas right, today, right. you know, I would say probably 50 people at least know what that is or have heard of it. So yeah, it was yeah. totally different. Um, and then, uh, uh, Diane Sanfilippo, who you may know uh, yeah. of she's kind of in this space. She introduced me to Rob Wolf and said, Oh, I think you might, you know, you guys might hit it off. He's really into this paleo thing. I'm like, paleo, what's that? You know? <laughs> and I, you know, we got to talking, I was telling him about my experience. He's like, you, you know, you're on a paleo diet, right? I was like, Oh, I, I guess so. <laughs> so then I, you know, I started to learn more about it and, and, you know, one thing led to another and here I am. Uh, I think during that period, the, the biggest highlights are I went back to school to study Chinese medicine and acupuncture, and then eventually functional medicine um, became the way that I interact with patients. That's what I do now. I'm the co-director of a, 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 a pretty large medical clinic in California where uh, we treat people using functional medicine. Um, I wrote my first book on the paleo approach because it was so helpful to me. And that book was really about taking back your own individual health. And then over time, I started to realize that you can't really talk about individual health without talking about the larger context, you know, the larger social context, the societal context. And that if we really want to reclaim our individual health, we have to take back health care. Um, right. And that's what this book is about, Unconventional Medicine. It's, it's, it's about taking back health care and the way that we prevent and a way that we address chronic disease. And I'm sure we'll talk about shifting more towards prevention and reversal. Right now, we don't prevent and reverse chronic disease. We just manage it with drugs and focus on suppressing symptoms. And well, the, the, the topic is so overwhelmingly huge that I, I mean, I just yeah. applaud you right out of the gate for even being willing to, to take it on at all, because it, it just sends me into hopelessness. Like it's just, right. I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to do everything I can yeah. for my family. I'm going to help the people around me that are willing to listen. And I'm just going to ignore the rest because it just, it's, it's beyond me. I can't fix this. It's, it's impossible. Yeah. And so yeah. just, just your willingness to tackle the problem, you know, and write about it is, uh, I mean, is, is commendable. I think it, I mean, I, I certainly understand your perspective and there are definitely days where I still feel like that. Um, and I think that's a what in, in many ways, that's a wise choice because that's, I mean, that's what you have to do first, right? You get on an airplane and you're traveling with kids, what happens, you know, when they do their song and dance about the safety procedures, they say, you know, put the oxygen mask on yourself first right. before you put it on your child. And, and, and that there's sense to that, you know, if you're incapacitated, you can't help your child. And likewise, you know, if you don't take care of your own health, you're not going to be able to, to help other people. And 
And, you know, there's natural instinct for us to care more about our, our, our family and people close to us than people on a broader scale. And that's all uh, natural. Um, I think what I came to realize after working with patients for 10 years and is that, you know, if, if I were to just continue doing the work that I had been doing, I would be able to serve people in a very meaningful way, but it might, the impact that I could have would be limited, you know, to, right. to a small right. subset of patients that are able to afford and access functional medicine as it currently exists. And right. the reality is that that subset is pretty small slice of the, of the general population. And when you look at some of the trends, um, they're, they're, they're incredibly alarming and disturbing, you know, th statistics like one in two Americans now having a chronic disease and one in four with multiple chronic diseases, almost 30% of kids now have, has a chronic disease and they're the first generation that's expected to actually live shorter lifespans than their parents. Well, I mean, that's what I mean by the overwhelming problem. And when I re started reading your book, I, I mean, it was like, I mean, I just love how clear it, it didn't help. It, didn't it did help not help that. No, no. <laughs> it, I mean, but it, but it, but you know, the funny thing is it didn't, it wasn't depressing. It was more just revealing, you know, like actually seeing statistics, it was helpful in a, in a strange way for me. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I don't know if this is everybody's response. Yeah. Like if you didn't know about this in the first place, you, you might go into a serious depression, <laughs> right. but, um, yeah. but for me, it was, you know, seeing those statistics and the overwhelming, the staggering financial cost to the world that is like a, basically like a nuclear bomb, um, you know, in 30 or 40 years and within our lifetime is, is the way you, the yeah, way think, you describe that is just think, incredible. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you just nailed it right there with nuclear bomb. I, I, I think, you know, I've, I've said in other interviews that, um, people often are not aware of the gravity of this problem. Um, and I think you can compare it to something like potentially like a nuclear Holocaust in, in terms of the scope of its impact, because, uh, I mean, let's just consider a couple of other statistics. Like, uh, it's projected that if the healthcare spending continues to expand at its current pace, uh, some estimates suggest that by the year 2035 or 2040, the U.S. will be completely insolvent, financially bankrupt. So we will have no money to pay for education or, uh, you know, other social services other than healthcare if we continue to spend as much as we're spending. Um, that's that's pretty big deal to right. you know like to actually contemplate the dissolution of our state. You know, um, that's, uh, that's, that's a level at which there, um, I don't think people really conceive of healthcare being that much of a threat, but it, it really is right. actually. And I would even argue that it goes beyond that and become, starts to become an existential threat to the survival of our species. Um, some of the most disturbing statistics I've seen recently have been regarding the decline in, in male sperm count um over the last 20 years and it's pretty alarming and precipitous and you know <laughs> i think it goes without saying that if we can't reproduce that's i mean that's game over in a very short period of time right. um so i, I don't want to sound alarmist and that, that i think that that's going to happen anytime soon but it's it's it highlights what the stakes are here right right the um you know I, why, why why is the sperm count dropping like what 
Is that too big of a question? Uh, there, too... There's lots of speculation, envir- increased exposure to environmental toxins, mm-hmm. inflammatory conditions, which are, of course, all chronic modern disease, you know, poor diet, changes in the microbiome. Um, I think environmental toxins probably play the biggest role there from what I've seen of the research. And you know, the reality is we've been performing a very large um, global uncontrolled experiment on ourselves for the last several decades in, in regards to environmental toxins. Um, the, the current regulations in the U.S. and most of the world are that any chemical that is introduced into the system is innocent until proven guilty. Um, so a company that comes up with a new chemical and you know, wants to include it in their products or their manufacturing process, they don't have to prove that it's safe. They can, they're free to just introduce it into the environment. And then, you know, years later, we find out it's causing, you know, severe birth defects and malformations in animals. And, oh, guess what? It's also affecting our kids. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. um, causing all kinds of increased risk of disease and, you know, fertility problems in, in adults. I mean, this is actually how it works. It sounds preposterous. It sounds like the plot of some, you know, apocalyptic science fiction novel, but, um, the burden of proof is on society to show that these chemicals are harmful. It's wow. not on the companies that introduce them to show that they're safe, which is totally ass backwards, excuse me. Right. Um, uh, but it's the way that, that we've been operating for many years. So you, is that just in the U.S.? Is that Europe, Europe also? That's, Europe is a little bit smarter about it than we are here, but um, I think that's still the way that it operates there. Wow. And so it means that globally we have thousands of chemicals that are persistent in the environment that are now being shown to have lots of deleterious effects, even at very low doses. And sometimes the effects they have at low doses are different than the effects they have at high doses, which makes them difficult to study. Um, And I think we're going to look back uh, in 50 years or even uh, a shorter time period and see this as one of the biggest mistakes we've ever made as a species because it's, it's difficult to even predict the range of effects that this can have because there's no control. It, you know, they're just all over. And then, the, and then there's a synergistic effect when you have multiple chemicals that someone's exposed to and they're interacting inside of the body in ways that are really hard to, to understand, much less predict. It, it's quite a quagmire. Um, so I think that's the biggest issue with, with reproductive health, as far as I can tell. Right. Right. What, um, so you mentioned inflammation, you mentioned the microbiome. Um, what are some of the things that you see as in your functional medicine practice that are contributing to these long-term, I mean, I kind of know the answer to this, but I'd like you to kind of talk about them. Um, uh, things that you know, parents should be aware of for their kids, things that parents should be aware of for their themselves. Um, what are some of the big, big things that you're seeing on a regular basis? Um, certainly diet, um, has to be at the top of the list and, you know, all you have to do is look at what the traditional human diet was for all of our, all of our evolution and see how different it is uh, from what we're eating today to, to know that there's a, a big mismatch there and that's causing a lot of problems. Um, I, I would actually say that, um, sleep deprivation, I, w- I would put either at number two or, or tied for, uh, number two with, with physical inactivity as being the, 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 the second and third most, 
uh, significant drivers of the chronic disease epidemic. Um, we, uh, the, the research on sleep has just become more and more robust over the last several years. I think most scientists who study obesity and, and diabetes and other metabolic disorders are, are in agreement that sleep, is act, sleep loss is actually a bigger factor than, than physical inactivity in metabolic disease, which is you know, pretty surprising, I think, for most people to hear that. Um, <clears throat> but certainly physical activity is crucial. And if you look, that's a ma another major difference between hunter-gatherers and um, modern people is that you know, we, we sit on our butts way too much, like we're doing right now <laughs> with this interview. Um, and we, most many of us do at work. Many of us also do it in our leisure time now with video games and Netflix, binge-watching. Binge you know, uh, there are a number of ways now that we um, can be sedentary that we never had before. And yep. so I think that has a big impact. Well, how about just the fact that we have furniture? I mean, you have, if you don't have things sure. to sit on, I, I, I love Katie Bowman's work. And, you know, I've told my wife, I, my goal over the course of my life is to get rid of all my furniture. And she just, she's ready to kick me out of the house for that, even the <laughs> thought of that. Yeah, but, yeah, but absolutely. It, I, mean, I find that if I, if I, if I don't have it there to sit on, I sit in some way that, that is actually very functionally, you know, smart. I don't, I don't slouch. I don't, you know, like <laughs> it's amazing absolutely. what happens when you don't have it there. Well, that I, I would extend that and just make a general point. And this is what, you know, my first book, I talked a lot about this mismatch between our modern environment and what our genes and biology are hardwired for and our physiology. There are many different examples of where the modern environment is set up to make us fail. And right. you just mentioned one of them is physical activities. Like just think about things like escalators, you know, right. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, an escalator, just erases an opportunity for someone to walk upstairs. Yeah. I pretend like those activity. don't exist. I mean, that's my own yeah, little I, internal I, I mandate. Too. Absolutely. Same but, with the, but, they, same with know, the people movers in airports. Yeah. Sorry. People movers, but here, yeah. but the, here's the thing. Humans are hardwired to conserve energy from an evolutionary right. perspective. Right. That would have been a, a, a behavior that would help us to survive, you know, because Historically, the problem was not too little activity. It was like, how can we conserve energy in order to face the threats we need to face in the natural environment? So we're genetically programmed to take the easy route. It's not a failure of willpower. It's not you know, something wrong with us. It's actually how we're hardwired. So if you have an, a built environment that, that presents opportunities for us to take the easy way, most people are gonna do it. Now, like you can overcome that, with con with your you know frontal cortex understanding that you need more physical activity so you make the conscious choice not to take the escalator or the people mover and yeah. i might do that too but for the average person who's not thinking about it in that way that uh, this is an example of how the modern environment sets them up to fail and another easy example is our brains for the same reason, from evolutionary perspective, you know, optimizing our survival chances in a, in a pretty harsh natural environment that was characterized by food scarcity rather than food abundance, our brains are hardwired to seek out highly rewarding calorie dense food. Because the more of that we ate, the more insulated we would be from periods of food scarcity or famine, right? The, and, and we the people who survived are the ones who are best at, you know, who, mm -hmm. uh, seeking out that, that, food and passing those genes on to their ancestors. We are the distant, uh, 
you know, ancestors of, or, or the, the distant relatives of those ancestors who were very successful in that. So you can see how that would work well in an environment of food scarcity, but how does that work in an environment of food abundance where we are surrounded by highly uh, rewarding calorie dense food? You know, you walk down to the corner and there's a 7-Eleven with a big, you know, super big gulp and pizzas and there's Costco with huge boxes of, you know, like super packs of everything. And I mean, we are again, set up genetically, we're hardwired to, to fail in that kind of environment. It's, it's almost like a perfect recipe for making us overeat. And that's why we have the obesity epidemic. So I think it's super important to understand these, these ways that we're mismatched because it helps us to then develop behavioral strategies that can mitigate those natural, you know, proclivities, like the way that we would naturally be inclined to behave in that environment. Mm -hmm. And we can set up stops like removing your furniture from the house or getting right. a standing desk like i have here which yeah. is not it happens to be in the sitting position but yeah i, I actually do um, too it's funny you said that we're both sitting we we i'm yeah, sitting we should, we should I, elevate our standing desk I, I right have, now this is what i'm sitting on it's this stool you can see exactly. it but people can't see i it, have but, yeah. i have this kind of particular chair where I always sit on the front of the chair uh -huh. where it's angled down and I, you know, I try to align my body, um, so that I, my back is straight and, you know, I don't always do this successfully, but to keep my chin back chin and align back, my yeah. posture, yeah. you know, I don't keep junk food in the home right. because I know that that, you know, if in moments where my, where I'm experiencing decision fatigue, which we can come back to, I might reach out for that if it's there. Um, you know, I set up my, I choose where I work, uh, in my office and I, you know, I admittedly have the privilege and luxury to be able to do this based on the fact that it's, I can ride my bike to the office. Right. Um, right. so, you know, there, there are ways that we can reverse engineer our environment and, and set up, um, sort of, uh, buffers and ways that we can interfere with that programming um, and the mismatch of the modern environment that, that would make us fail. You know, we're, you know, people like you, people like me, we're, we're kind of on the cutting edge of doing this stuff, like the way you're set up, the way I'm set up. How do you, you know, and I think your current book, it goes into this. How do you deal with the, the overwhelming problem of getting this mainstream, getting people to ignore the massive amounts of food availability at, at 7-Eleven and Costco and come up and do these strategies on their own without going broke in the process and overriding yeah. these natural biological functions. Well, see, that's, I mean, that is in large part why I wrote this book. And that, what I was saying earlier is I realized that, um, I you know, when I thought about the kind of impact I wanted to have and, you know, I, I, I did the rocking chair test, which I which I like to do, and I've I find it to be really helpful. When you imagine yourself in a rock at a hundred years old, looking back on your life in a rocking chair, you know what would you have liked to have accomplished? What you know, what activities would you th think were most important? And this is sometimes how I make decisions about what I want to do or not do. So I apply that rocking chair test. Oh, I like that. You know, if I, um, and if I look back from a hundred years, it, it sometimes is very clarifying, like, oh, that's clearly a waste of time, <laughs> you know, right. spending more time with my daughter, excellent use of time. Like right. I'm not going to, I know when I look back at a hundred years old that I will never regret having chosen to spend more time with my daughter, but I might regret saying yes to a project that, you know, it, from that perspective is not going to be very important. Yep. Um, 
anyhow, from that, from looking at it from that vantage point, I thought I, I really want to, um, have this work that we're doing, um, reach a greater number of people. And the way to do that for better or for worse is to affect their healthcare system on a bigger scale. Like, like I said before, the number of people who can come to a private functional medicine clinic and spend the hundreds of thousands of dollars they have to spend on all that testing and yep. is, is, is limited and will always be limited. And so, um, this book is really more about how do we make this stuff accessible on a bigger scale? And one of the answers to your questions, I think, I mean, certainly it's just education and raising awareness right. and shows like yours and, um, movements like what, uh, you know, the, the, the whole life challenge and other challenges that kind of raise awareness about this stuff. But, um, another thing that we can do is really change the way that the healthcare system functions. And one of the biggest shifts would be, um, what I call the collaborative practice model, which is, um, shifting away from, you know, we, we all, we need doctors now and we will always need doctors, uh, to perform procedures, you know, do advanced diagnostic testing, uh, do things like colonoscopies, remove cancerous tumors, et cetera. Like that's absolutely crucial and, and will remain important in the future. However, I think we can all agree that using doctors to try to work with people on the level of diet, lifestyle, and behavior change is, is not really a smart choice for a number of reasons. First, they're not trained to do it. Right. Um, you know, they take one nutrition class in college or in medical school, maybe, and it's usually based on really outdated information. Number two, they don't have time. The average length of a visit with primary care providers, 10 minutes. So there's, there's no way that there's going to be enough time for a doctor to do that. And number three, they, that's not really the best use of their eight years of edu or plus years of education and skill set, you know, like, um, so what we need is a whole nother layer of practitioner that is working intensively with, with patients on changing their diet, changing their behavior, changing their lifestyle. And I think that's where health coaches can make a really big impact and not just health coaches, also personal trainers, gym, you know, people who are running gyms, like this whole, we can create this whole infrastructure where these people can get that information out and provide the support that people need to make those changes. What do you, what is a health coach? What are you talking about? That's a really good question. Cause there's a lot of misunderstanding about what a health coach is and isn't. Um, I think a lot of times when people hear the word coach, they still think of someone with like a whistle around their neck, you know, <laughs> totally. uh, give me 50, like my, my basketball coach yeah. making us run laps, and we didn't, you know, didn't do something right. Um, that's not what a health coach is or does a health coach is someone that's actually pretty highly trained in techniques like motivational interviewing, positive psychology, coaching the strengths, um, you know, building trust and rapport with their clients, helping their clients to set goal, actionable goals, you know, being an accountability partner and the health coach's role is essentially to, to be a change agent, to help the, um, client change their behavior in ways that promote long-term health. Um, and that usually, you know, a skilled health coach won't do that by just telling the client what to do. They learn how to evoke the client's own motivation and strategies for change. And then to, um, uh, so that the patient basically just discovers, um, is empowered 
to do it themselves. So it's that old saying, you know, if you give a man a fish, he eats for a day, you, you teach him to fish, he eats for a lifetime. So a health coach is really that person that teaches people how to fish. You know, they, they encourage the, the client to, d- to develop their own resources and strategies and tools, um, knowing that if they do that, the, ch- the chances of the changes being permanent uh, or at least very long lasting are gonna be much higher. I, I I see that job as being such a um it's almost like a life coach for your health. That's um, a good way of thinking about it. Yeah. You know, I mean I've been a fitness coach now for twenty five years and very often I felt that I didn't I didn't have the necessary first of all, I'm not necessarily qualified to talk about mm-hmm. some of the things that I was drawn yeah. to talk about. But the other yeah. thing is there's a, there's an interesting lack of, I, I call it lack of permission. You know, like somebody comes to see you for fitness, even though your, your, your area of expertise is in their well-being for, for a lot of fitness professionals. Um, you, you know, a lot, a lot of, a lot of people don't, haven't given you yet that, uh, their trust or their, their permission to open yeah. those doors because those doors yeah. go very, very deep and, or they can, Absolutely. um, mm-hmm. there's a lot of emotional connections. And I, and I think one of the most important things that you're describing in these health coaches is that they have the training in m- motivation and awareness and emotional ties to these other things. Um, wh- is, is that something that is readily available today or, um, uh, yeah. I, mean, I, I don't know so, much about health, how the yeah, concept me, of health. Let me coach. use a couple of examples that I think will be helpful or, or just a couple of things to clarify. So, you know, most healthcare practitioners and even trainers and co- uh, coaches now uh, f- function in what we call the expert approach. So that, that means the, the practitioner is seen as the authority, the authority has the answers and delivers information and advice to the client who then, or patient who passively receives that information and then is expected to act on it. Um, now that works pretty well in the, in the context of like a, 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 an acute condition or even a chronic condition like cancer where the patient goes to see the oncologist and they're explicitly asking them for advice on what to do and, and their advanced medical knowledge it, you know, the expert approach I think is appropriate in that situation. Yep. But what we know is that that approach is not effective when it comes to making lasting diet, lifestyle, and behavior changes. And how do we know that? Well, um, we wouldn't have the obesity ep- epidemic. We wouldn't have diabetes epidemic. We wouldn't have, you know, divorced marriage counselors and doctors who smoke cigarettes. And, you know, uh, if information isn't, was enough, we wouldn't be in the situation that we're in now. Right. Right. In most cases, it is not an information problem. It's not that the person doesn't know what to do or what they should be doing. It's that they don't know how to do it. They don't know how to change their behavior successfully. And so this is where health coaches can make a really big difference. And again, it's, it's not by acting as junior experts. It's by learning how, like, let me just use motivational interviewing as an example, since you, you, you brought it up. Um, Let's imagine a woman who's 55 years old and she's diagnosed with diabetes and the the doctor says, well, you really got to clean up your diet, you know, and, and start exercising more. And she's really tired. She works a lot. She, you know, uses food for comfort, which a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. She's, 
you know, when she starts to think about what's involved in actually making these changes, she gets overwhelmed and just, you know, doesn't do it. And that happens most of the time. Um, again, we know this because of the current statistics on obesity and, di and diabetes. So someone who is trained in motivational interviewing, what they would help that client do is to tie their deeper motivations and goals to their health and the changes that are being proposed. So let's say that woman just had her first grandchild was born. And let's say she really wants to grow up or wants to see her grandchild grow up and at least graduate college. And let's say she wants to be able to enjoy playing with her grandchild without dealing, you know, having her foot amputated or, or developing retinopathy or blindness or, you know, some of the other advanced complications of diabetes. Well, she might not be motivated enough to make these changes on her own for her own benefit. But if that deeper goal of seeing her grandchild grow up and being able to be a, a vital you know, part of her life can be tied to the changes that she's making um, in her own experience, like not, not the coach tying those, but, but kind of supporting and shepherding the client to be able to make that connection, then there's so much more of a chance that, that the, the client's actually going to make those changes and stick with them. Hmm. And that's just one example. I mean, their coaches also learn how to identify strengths in, in people and, and help to, uh, guide clients to use those strengths to accomplish their goals and make the changes they want to make. You know, historically psychology and even other helping professions has been centered around fixing what's broken, mm -hmm. but this uh, recent field developments in positive psychology have shown that in most cases, it's a lot more effective to focus on what's already working and to build on those strengths uh, instead of trying to fix what's, what's broken. Well, I mean, so you know, one of the, just, one of the, my thoughts about that is, uh, you know, we're really naturally, I think, I don't know if it's all human beings, but most of the human beings I've worked with are very short term thinkers. And, uh, we, we don't, we don't do a very good job of holding on to things. Well, like the, like the, uh, nuclear bomb example of the healthcare industry. We don't, we don't think what might happen in 40 years or global warming or, you know, some of these other big issues. We, we think about now and the here and now. And I think when it comes to your own health and well-being, you don't necessarily connect what you're doing today with what your life will be like in 30 years. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, the, the closer you can make those connections which, which is kind of what I think you're talking about. Um, the, the more likely people are to actually take action. Cause you, you go to the doctor and you're, you've got an elevated, um, you know, uh, infl inflammatory markers. There, there's nothing wrong per se, right. You know, like, you, there, it's your yeah, blood you work necessarily experience that subjectively. Yeah. There are no, no external yeah. symptoms. And so, mm -hmm. so the impetus to do something doesn't exist yet. You know, like somebody waiting for their arm to break. Uh, you know, if their arm's not broken, then why put a cast on? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there is definitely that problem. Um, I would say, I mean, that's, that's significant. I say there, there are definitely a lot of people who, fall, who are having symptoms and still right. aren't successful in making the changes. Right. But, um, you know, one of the key principles of motivational interviewing is that human beings have a natural tendency to resist being told what to do. Right. I mean, if, right. is, it, is anybody listening realize that? I, you know, 
I do. I, uh, I watch it in my dogs. Yeah, I'm, I'm try, raising my hand. Yeah. You know, like, try getting I mean, your dog to move across the room and pulling him with a leash. The, the first right, thing you do is go dog. pull the other right. way. I mean, certainly <laughs> humans is, is like, you know, if you tell someone what to do and anyone who has kids knows that this is true. I, mean, I have a six-year-old daughter and yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, learning, I'm seeing a powerful reflection of, of this. And I know this was true in my childhood. And it's even true for most of us as adults. We don't like to be told what to do. Right. But if we come to the same conclusion that someone else told us on our own, what's going to happen? We'll actually act on that because right. we, we discovered it in, in our own process of exploration and it's ours and we own it and it's, it's our experience. And we're willing to act on that even when we aren't, if someone told us the exact same thing. Yeah. Um, so this is a key principle of that health coaches need to learn because you know, I've, I've often heard from people who are working as, as health coaches and, or, and say, they come and say something like, Oh, I'm so frustrated. You know, none of my clients are, are doing what I'm telling them to do. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm thinking, well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's not health coaching. I mean, that's, 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 um, you could be like a nutritionist or, you know, you're, you're, you're playing some kind of role as an expert, which is great. And maybe mm -hmm. that's what you want to do. And maybe that's what you're but it doesn't sound like that's what your clients want. Even if they think they want that, they don't want that. What right. they want is someone and need is someone who's going to actually help them discover their own, that, those things on their own. And once they do, that's when you actually start to see the changes really happening. So, um, you know, there are some, some coaching programs, health coaching programs that are approaching things from this perspective. And next year, um, that's my newest uh, initiative that I'm most excited about is we're launching a health coach training program wow. that incorporates a lot of these principles that we're talking about, because I just, I've become convinced that that's the only way that we're going to address chronic disease. We don't have enough doctors. There's already almost a, by 2025, there's going to be a 50,000, um, uh, shortage in primary care providers. And as I said before, even if that weren't the case, they're not the best people to address diet, lifestyle, and behavior change. And that is the primary driver of chronic disease. Right. Right. So it, it's kind of, it makes, you know, when, when you put it like that, it's, it's like kind of an obvious conclusion yep. um, in my mind. Well, I think, you know, you're addressing this um, motivational, uh, what did you call it? Motivational, motivational uh, interviewing, interviewing. Yeah. It, I mean, is that something you came up with or is that, has no, that been no, around? No, this is, this is actually evolved out of the field of addiction. Ah. It was originally developed as a way to work with people who are dealing with substance abuse. Huh. Um, and to, to, to address ambivalence, which is like, eh, you know, I, I don't see a problem. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm smoking cigarettes. I don't really see a problem. Right. I kind of know I should stop, but I don't really want to stop or, right. Right. you know, I'm drinking, I'm, I'm drinking a lot and I don't really see a problem. And, you know, I, I kind of see a problem, but I don't, it, this is classic yeah. ambivalence. And, um, what people in the addiction world realize very early on is just saying, you should stop smoking or you should stop drinking. Yeah, it was, yeah. uh, you know, ineffective about 99.999% of the time. Right, and right. so, you know, some people in that community over time evolved this, this approach, which came to be known as motivational interviewing. And it was very successful compared mm -hmm. to the traditional sort of top down, you know, paternalistic, don't do that um, approach, which just didn't work. And now that has, that has expanded out past, um, 
you know, the addiction community and is now being used in the, in the context of, of, um, coaching, not just health coaching, but yeah, all no, right. I mean, yeah. I, it sounds to me like that, it, that should be a prerequisite for every fitness or health coach in the world. I mean, I, it's just it's like, you need, I, I mean, I feel like I need to go, I need to go yeah. back and learn that. Like my, I'm like, not going to argue with you. Fantastic. And, and medical practitioners too. Yeah. I mean, you know, medical practitioners are dealing with ambivalence every day. And while they may not have the time and space to go into a lot of that kind of conversation with, with clients, even just two minutes of knowing, you know, some of the key principles of motivational interviewing, you're not going to be an expert, but, um, it can, it can, it can make the difference between someone doing following yeah. through or not. Cause I mean, what we're talking about is influence and you're no yeah. good to anyone. And look, a surgeon is good to people because a surgeon doesn't have to convince another person to do something. They just do it on them. You know, they cut yeah. their, they cut it, they fix it, they prepare it or whatever. But, but uh, the kind of doctoring you're talking about and the kind of coaching we're, we're talking about is the only way it works is is if you're able to actually influence the behavior of the client or the or the uh, patient that you're going to see. It's otherwise it's it's it doesn't matter how much you know. I mean, yeah. right? You could go to school for 27 years and be the world's smartest person, but if 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 the person you're talking to doesn't care or doesn't decide that they're going to actually take action as a result, what does it matter? Absolutely. I agree a hundred percent. And I think that is exactly the conundrum we find ourselves in, in, in just in a healthcare situation at large. And, and while we continue to wonder, geez, we've been telling people not to overeat for so long. Why do they keep doing it? <laughs> Those bad, bad people, they're not listening. Right. You know, what, what's the matter with them? And, you know, I actually, I know a lot of practitioners kind of have that attitude. Um, and I get it. You know, it's frustrating when you know that you could help someone and you know that if they just acted on the information that you're providing, that they could, they, they would get better, whether that's a family member or a client or a patient. It's super frustrating. I know yeah. I've been in that role myself uh, and, and I am in it. Um, but it's not the right way to approach it because, um, uh, you know, as we've said now, that just telling someone what to do is not enough to support the lasting behavioral change. And we have to develop more tools, add more tools to our bag. Um, we've been talking about one of them, motivational interviewing. I also mentioned coaching to strengths, which is another important tool. Mm -hmm. But there's also just learning more about the evidence-based principles of behavior change. If you want to be a change agent, you have to know how behavior change happens successfully. And there's turns out there's a ton of research on that. I mean, it's, it's like a, an area that is blown up in the past two decades in terms of what we have learned about it. And, you know, let's use meditation for, for example, if you want to learn to meditate or you want to help your client start a meditation practice, what the recommendation that's often made would be like, okay, start meditating. You know, I'd recommend a half hour a day. Um, you know, you, here's where you can buy a meditation cushion. Good luck. Uh, well, um, you know, again, about 99.999% of people are going to fail with that approach because right. it's too big of a change too quickly. Um, and what we, you know, there's a principle in, in behavior change called shrink the change, which means if you want to make a bigger change, you have to break that up into very, very small increments for it to be successful. Again, in most cases, there are always exceptions to the rule. Um, that one person who just like, yes, I'm going to meditate every day and sit down and do it for an hour. But right. they're totally the exception. Chris, have you ever seen and the movie called, um, uh, what about Bob? 
Right. It's one of my favorite yeah. movies. I mean, baby yeah. steps, baby steps. Baby steps. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. So, I mean, what does that look like? It might actually look like sometimes when I recommend it to patients, I say, okay, step one is to download the Headspace app. Right. That's it. Right. You don't even use it. You just download it. Right. That's step, step one. Step two is to create a little space in your bedroom where you can sit, you know, do sit. That's it. Step three is to get a meditation cushion. You know, step four is to put that meditation cushion in that space that you created. <laughs> and right, I mean, it right. sounds ridiculous. Some people are kind of insulted by it and feel like, oh my God, that's, that's kind of like, so you're talking to a five-year-old. Well, we, that's kind of actually how it is when we're talking, when we're dealing with behavior change, we all have that. We're dealing with like our kind of inner five-year-old. It's like, no, I don't want to do this. Yeah. Right. Right. And so, um, what happens is you create a self-reinforcing positive feedback loop where you, you experience a series of wins. Oh, cool. I downloaded the app. Check that off. Cool. I created that space. Check that off. Cool. I got that meditation cushion. So you're experiencing like a sense of success with each step that you take. Mm -hmm. And then each step builds on the last. And before you know it, after two, three weeks of, of starting off with just two minutes of meditation a day, and then building, increasing by a minute every three or four days, you're up to 10 minutes of meditation a day. When if you would have just started by, okay, meditate for 10 minutes, you're not going to get there. So there are lots of little, um, powerful ways of, of addressing behavior change that I don't think most practitioners are using in their work with clients, um, that we can use. So I think it's really just like about upping our game to a whole different level when it comes to being change agents ourselves. Chris, is that the approach that you think we need in the, uh, in the macro context of this whole problem, you know, of the, of the doctors and the, the pharmaceutical companies and big medicine and big industrial food I mean, small steps toward this thing, or do we need to just control alt delete and uh, reboot the whole system? Well, that's a, that's a very interesting question. And and people have asked me that in different ways, like how are we going to get there? Um, and I, I have, I can give you two possibilities and, and your, your listeners can choose which one they think is more likely based on their personality and whether they're a glass half empty or glass half full type right. of person. I think one possibility is that we do make a series of incremental changes. Um, you know, we start, we raise, a, I think awareness is going up. I mean, certainly yeah. like we talked about in the beginning of the show, a lot more people are aware, are aware of diet and the contribution of diet to health. The awareness of functional medicine is increasing dramatically. There's now a Cleveland clinic center for functional medicine, you know, one of the most prestigious medical institutions in the world. Um, you know, we're doing a pilot program with the Berkeley fire department where we're using a whole functional medicine and coaching intervention with them. Rob Wolf has done something similar with the city of Reno. So there are all these pockets where you're seeing change and really positive stuff happening, but it's, it hasn't, you know, become, uh, it hasn't scaled to, to right. where we need to scale it to. So, so one possibility is these pockets keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and they start then touching each other. And then, you know, um, it starts to move from the local grassroots level to the state level to then eventually maybe the federal policy level. And we see the change happen that way. Another possibility is that the system implodes. Um, and, you know, many people would argue that we're already quite close to that. If you've been you know, following the healthcare debate and you know, certainly uh, we're in a 
in a precarious place. And we simply cannot go on the way that we're going with the increase in the prevalence of, of chronic disease. I mean, we're already buckling under the, the current burden of chronic disease. And at the rate that chronic disease is expected to rise in the next 20 years, it could spell complete disaster for, for our healthcare system as we know it. And, and why would it not do that? I mean, if it, our whole system, our whole capitalistic system is built upon selling products, g- getting people addicted to things that they're, that they're naturally wired to eat or wired to do. Uh, and so people are, wh- that's not going to stop. It's true, but I will point out that the healthcare systems in other developed countries, while not while being far from perfect and far from the ideal that I lay out in my book, are also far better than our system. That if you, by all objective measures of healthcare performance, the system in the UK and in Scandinavia and in France is way better. There's way less influence of the pharmaceutical industry there. They don't allow direct-to-consumer drug advertising as only we and, the, and New Zealand do, the only two countries in the world. Drug costs are much lower. Um, they have more, uh, more progressive uh, programs in many ways. And so, and they're, they're developed countries, you know, they're, yeah. they're, um, so I think it is possible to do in a way that's much better than we are doing. Do you outline uh, and, some of the differences in the book about those, those systems compared to our and, system and what, what, what some of those are? I'm, my curiosity I just, I don't peaked. go into a lot of detail on that in the book. I mean, I, I, the book, I wanted the book to be accessible and not like a Bible on the table, you know, kind of like my first book was. Um, and so it was hard to decide what to, what not to have in there. That was the hardest decision. Right. Um, but your point is a good one. And, and that certainly people who, you know, whether you want to call them people who see the glasses half empty or just realists, (laughs) um, you know, we are battling against some very deeply entrenched financial interests. Um, and, and as you pointed out, um, for better or for worse, they're, uh, they are publicly held corporations who have a fiduciary obligation to maximize the profit of their shareholders. Right. That, that, that's how the system works. Right. And so you could look at it that way and say, is it any wonder that we're in this situation? And as long as the pharmaceutical companies are spending $250 million a year lobbying Congress, which by the way, is more than any industry spends by far to put that in perspective. I think the gun lobby spends a paltry $25 million a year. So uh, big pharma is spending 10 times more than the gun lobby to get their way. Yes. These are, these are difficult problems that we face. And, um, so, you know, one possible scenario is that the healthcare system fails and, in the same way that like an alcoholic hits rock bottom and says, wow, okay, I get it. I have to make a change or, you know, my life's at stake that we at that point collectively as a nation say, okay, I get it. The way we're, we're the status quo was not working. We actually need this. This was giving, going to give us the fortitude that we need to stand up to these financial interests and create a system that's actually in the best interest of patients more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, you know, take your pick. Yeah, <laughs> those right. are, those are two possible scenarios. I think they're both credible. Um, but you know, which one you think is more likely to play out. It depends on your, your viewpoint. It's interesting. I'm, I'm a glasses half full normal person, but <laughs> I 
and I also am going to take personal responsibility. I already do for my part in this, but I don't see much hope of the first scenario playing out without, I mean, it just seems like, you know, we're wired to eat. We're also wired to require us to go to rock bottom before we're willing to make a change. Like just generally speaking. Um, I mean, it's fair. That's not a yeah, good, and that's the, not I mean, a happy the, thought. The other thing is that, that energy conservation principle also works against us. If you give somebody right. an alternative, if they, they go and they have high cholesterol and you say, okay, you've got two options. Um, you can take a pill, a satin that will lower your cholesterol, or you can overhaul your diet and, you know, start a physical activity routine and, you know, change your lifestyle in these other ways. Um, that, that principle of least effort would suggest that the person would take the pill yep. and that, and they do that's, that's what happens. But that's only if that is presented as an equivalent choice, which unfortunately it often is, yeah. um, as you know, and most of your listeners know, it's not equivalent. You don't get the same benefit from taking the pill that you would get by cleaning up your diet and increasing your physical activity and making those other lifestyle changes. You might see the numbers change on the paper in the same way, but that obscures the many other benefits that would come from making those changes. Yeah. So that conversation could be very different. It could be something like, okay, well, we've, we found that your cholesterol is high and, uh, you know, there, there are different options for what to do here. Yes, we do have a drug that lowers cholesterol, but it does have some, uh, potentially serious side effects. And if, even if we give it to you, it's not going to address the reason that your cholesterol was high in the first place. So at best it will be a bandaid. Um, so what I would recommend is that you, uh, work with the, um, health coaches that we have on staff who will help you to overhaul your diet and they'll support you at every step of the way. They'll actually even come to your house and do a pantry clean out and take you to the grocery store and show you how to buy this food. They'll provide meal plans and recipes and they'll make this as easy for you as possible. And they'll be available, uh, you know, whenever you need help to, to, to support you. And then we'd also recommend that you, you know, set up a gym membership and, and start doing some training and, and we've got tra a trainer that we can refer you to and good news, your insurance company is going to cover all of this because they recognize that if they spend just a little bit of money up front to, uh, to do this with you, they could potentially set, save hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, over the course of your lifetime. And they know that, uh, you're not, if they do that, 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 um, you know, there's a good chance that they might save you from having an early heart attack. So, I mean, that that's, there's actually no financial or political or social obstacle from that being the conversation that happens in that context. It's only a question of, of will and, you know, us fighting against the entrenched interests that are preventing that conversation from being the one that happens typically. How do you get, I mean, that's a, that's a really amazing, uh, that would be an amazing context shift. Um, the, I, I think I remember the statistic you, you put out in your book. I don't remember the statistic, but I remember the, the $14,000 a year to treat a single patient with type two diabetes. Right. Yeah. And how multiply that out over the course of their life. Once they get diagnosed, you're talking, I think it was like $650,000. Is that right? Yeah. Is the average. Yeah. And, and that's, that's a conservative estimate because we now know that people are being diagnosed much earlier in their life with right. type two diabetes. Right. So and they can, can live, a, they can live a full life, you know? Absolutely. Right. You get a 20 year old 
who gets diagnosed now, who is going to live to 80 because of our heroic technologies that enable people to stay alive probably a lot longer than they would mm-hmm. be able to otherwise. So that's, you know, 60 years, um, uh, times 40, that's $850,000. And that's just for treating type two diabetes, you know, the Nothing cost else. of that one patient. Right. So, right. um, that's where I argue in the book that like, yeah, even if we spent $10,000 on a health coach and a personal trainer and even bought that patient's food for three months, you know, which we could do for less than $10,000 in six months, you could take that, you could reverse somebody from prediabetes to non-diabetic blood sugar levels and potentially save the healthcare system, 800, nearly a million dollars over the course of one patient's lifetime. And if we have a hundred million people now, according to the CDC with either prediabetes or diabetes, you know, that's some scary math. If you multiply a hundred million times, you know, 500,000, you get a number that's, you can't that, even, that explains why our, we'll be bankrupt. Right. Can't even and think that's about just that one number, disease. Right. That's right. one disease. That's not autoimmune disease. That's not, you know, any heart disease or any other disease. So, um, that's both the good news and the bad news. The good news with that is that it wouldn't actually take much to make a huge impact, you know, like, if we play, if we set up the system in a way that I just described, we could save the healthcare system probably over a trillion dollars. So we're not mm-hmm. talking about that's not jump change, you know. That's just like a game-changing impact. Yeah. And I, I firmly believe that you know we with with just some fairly sensible, not you know, advanced earth-shattering changes, we could save well over a trillion dollars in our healthcare budget. And imagine what we could do with that money. You know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's totally possible. It just, uh, but I also agree, as you said, that, you know, we have, we have some very powerful interests that are not in alignment with that way of thinking. Yeah. Chris, can I shift gears a little bit? Um, just in the last, are you good? Still good on time? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, I want to know a little bit more about how you, uh, manage your life. You know, how do you, you know, now you're over, obviously you're, you're past the disease state you were in when you were in your twenties. Um, what do you do to keep yourself healthy, balanced, um, you know, stress-free or maybe not, um, you know, what, what, cause you're not living a stress-free life. I mean, there's no way you're up to what you're up no. to and your life is stress-free. So wh- no. yeah. What are, what are some of your techniques and tips and, and daily habits? Yeah. Well, I definitely, um, in most cases follow my own advice. So mm-hmm. I eat a very good diet. Um, I'm not religious about it. I've, I follow kind of like a 90, 10 rule probably, um, mm-hmm. where, you know, 90% of the time I stick very close to what I know works best for me. And 10% of the time, for example, I was just down in, in Baja doing some surfing and a digital detox, which I'll come back to, mm-hmm. uh, cause that's a big part of how, what keeps me sane. Um, and I, I've been going down to Mexico for, you know, 30 years. I love chips and salsa and guacamole. And so when I'm down in Mexico and surfing, I'll, I'll definitely have some chips and salsa and guacamole occasionally. Mm-hmm. I like it. It makes me, I don't feel bad afterwards and it makes me happy. So right. I do that. Right. Um, I am, I am quite one area where I am pretty uh, rigid is with sleep. I, you know, it's like, there's very little that I will let interfere with time, my sleep pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm always, you know, virtually always in bed for at least eight hours. I may not always sleep. I'm, I'm kind of on the, I'm one of those people that probably only needs about seven to seven and a half hours of sleep to, to function well. Um, 
but do, I'm always. Do you find in bed. that your schedule matters? Like um, the time that you actually get into bed and and start Absolutely. falling asleep. If I miss, if I don't, if I don't fall asleep by ten thirty, um, I will have generally poor quality sleep. Because um, right. as a lifelong surfer, an early morning riser, I wake up at five thirty. You know, so right, I go right. to bed at two thirty. I wake up at five thirty. <laughs> go to go to right. bed at twelve. I wake up at five thirty. It sucks. It's really actually it was very inconvenient in college and other times where I wanted to stay up late, uh, but that's just the way it is. So I've just accepted that, and that's how I how I operate now. Um, do you, what do you do to get yourself to go to bed? I mean, maybe perhaps it's such an ingrained thing now that you don't even have to think about it, but was there a point at which it wasn't? And what, what were some of the tips, the techniques you use to get yourself to get to bed? Yeah. I mean, it, it has come pretty easy to me because I'm such a morning person. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I can answer that also in the context of the third thing that I pay a lot of attention to, which is stress management and stress mitigation. Um, as you said, I have, I have a lot of stuff going on in my life. So I, I certainly wouldn't argue that my life is stress-free and I don't want it to be. Um, in fact, you know, I think stress can be a very positive influence for, for, for human beings. Mm -hmm. um, and there's even now a distinction between uh, youth stress, which is a positive stress that induces uh, adaptation like exercise, um, or working on a challenging, but fulfilling project or distress, which cause, you know, contributes to disease. Um, so there are several ways that I, that I, uh, approach that. And, and some of those I think also helped me to get to bed early. So one is, um, I limit my exposure to artificial light at night. Um, we now know that that's problematic for a number of reasons. And so I will typically wear, you know, amber tinted glasses sure. when the sun goes down and then I will just not use any screens or have exposure to a phone or computer or, or um, lap uh, you know, uh, iPads, et cetera, within, um, ideally within two hours of bed, I'm not always successful with that, you know, but definitely within an hour, hour and a half of bed. Do you consider television the same, the same blue light? Um, source? I don't think it has the same impact, especially if you're sitting pretty far away from right, it. Right. Um, not nearly the same as having an iPad, like holding it up to your face. I right. think they're very different, but you're still, we if you are watching it, you're wearing the blue blocking. The, I uh, still wear those. Yeah. yeah I suffer yeah. The, the not having true color fidelity of, you know, whatever show I'm watching, I, right. I, I, I prioritize that good sleep over that. Um, but I'm also, uh, you know, I, I have a meditation practice, which I've had since I was 17. Uh, so 26 years now that wow. I've been doing that on a, on a daily basis. Um, I, I uh, imp lately have been really exploring technology addiction. And I think it's a, an underappreciated factor in, in a lot of suffering and a lot of other bad behavioral habits. So I'm re I, I, uh, really, over the past few years, have been limiting uh, my use of technology as much as possible, mm -hmm. you know, given my work and occupation. So I do things like digital detoxes. So I just went to Mexico after I released my book um, last month. It was a you know ch a challenging time, a great and rewarding time, but also challenging. So I planned in advance a 10 day trip at the end of after Thanksgiving, because I knew I would need that kind of, um, you know, rejuvenation time. And so when, while I was there, I didn't, I didn't check my email. I didn't check social media. I didn't engage in any work activities at all. Mm -hmm. Um, the only use of, of 
you know, my phone was to check the surf report or to look at, you know, for a restaurant to go to, or to pull up a map, you know, to use for direction. Did you remove those apps from your phone? So you weren't even tempted or how did you make, how did you resist the temptation? (laughs) You know, to tell you the truth at this point, because I've done that a number of times now, it's not hard for me to resist the temptation. Right. What's hard is to come back. (laughs) Yes. Well, I was going to ask you that question too. How do you, how do you keep your mind from saying, Oh yeah, I should probably check a little bit today because otherwise I'm going to be overwhelmed when I get back. Uh, I have a good trick for that. that I'll come back to. So I I also do shorter digital detoxes, you know, like of two or three days throughout the year. And then I have what I call uh, a free day. It's actually a term from Dan Sullivan, a strategic coach, mm-hmm. uh, where every Sunday, uh, for a 24 hour period from, you know, Saturday, uh, Sunday morning to Monday morning, I don't engage in any work. I, you know, I, I, I do a, basically a digital detox. I don't mm-hmm. even think about work. If I have a work thought, I just thought stop and go to the next thought. Yeah. Um, if I, I don't read books that will make me think about work, I don't have conversations about work. I'm just fully 24 hours, no work. And I would actually like to eventually, I'm, I'm up to about one and a half days on the, on the weekend. I'd like to do the full weekend where I'm not doing that at all. And sure. I have a goal of eventually having three days of every week be free, um, from work in that way. Cool. Um, so I came I can't claim that I came up with this strategy. I learned about it from somebody else, but when I go away, I put an autoresponder on my email that says, you know, sorry, I'm away. I'm off the grid. And, you know, initially I would come back to 527 emails and I would just be like, ah, this is terrible. You know, (laughs) um, and I would dread it. And then, um, I got an autoresponder like that from somebody else one time. And it said at the, you know, said the same thing. I'm away. I'm off the grid, but it said, I'm not even going to bother trying to get through these emails when I get back. So if you, if you want to contact me, just send me another email after, you know, after X date. And so now I do that. And um, my message says, you know, life's too short. I'm not going to bother, you know, digging through all these emails when I come back, uh, it would be a huge buzzkill. So if you need to reach somebody else urgently, you know, here's my assistance information and, you know, if you need to reach me, try me again when I get back. And it was a little edgy to do that the first time, you know, but, um, I've found a couple interesting things. Number one, it has like 10 X my enjoyment of my digital detox because I no longer have the dread of like, what's yeah. it going to be like to, to come back? Um, number two, I've found that, uh, even so-called urgent needs that most people have suddenly or, you know, magically become not that urgent when they're not able to reach me. (laughs) And and half the time people don't even write back. You know, I think the first time that I did that, I did go through some of the emails, um, and just scan and make sure there was nothing crucial that I missed before I deleted them. Um, but now I don't even do that. And because I know that if it's really important, someone will will reach me or they will have already talked to my assistant or whatever. And I, I actually heard of a company in Europe that, has gone a step further for their employees. When their employees go on vacation, they set up the same autoresponder, but they have the server delete the email. Wow. So that it's not even there. And, it, and the person who's on vacation has no, even if they decided that they wanted to check, they couldn't check. It's a great the idea. email is automatically deleted. So I, I started to wonder, how can I do that? Yeah. Gmail doesn't offer that capability. I yeah. use Google apps, but 
um, you know, I'm trying to figure out how I can actually program that in, not only for myself, but for my employees. You could send them into a folder, perhaps, you know, like, so they all disappear into a certain folder and then you'd have to manually delete that folder. Right. Or even Um, have someone else delete if I was really, you know, my assistant deleted or something. So, so I, um, you know, I read a book recently called Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology. And then I, I wrote, I read another book called Bored and Brilliant, um, which is more about how, what we call boredom is actually the most fertile time for creativity yeah. to happen and, and how we're suffering from the loss of that. And I, I just think it's, it's kind of the elephant in the room in, in many cases. I mean, I, I, I walk down the street now, or, you know, I'm just in a public place and, and I mean, we all see this, everybody is yeah. like this. Yeah. And this is another area we've talked about how our modern environment is almost designed to make us fail. Uh, well, digital devices like smartphones are, are uniquely p- set up to be addictive. Yeah. They trigger every single aspect of addictive behavior in our brains. And so no, none of us are immune. It affects all of us. And yet I think we're only at the very beginning of that conversation. I'm glad to see a lot more books about this now because I think in 10 years, it's going to be, it, what has to happen is it has to become socially unacceptable to just be like this with your phone at all times, especially when you're with other people in the same way that like smoking and other behaviors, which we've identified as being harmful have become somewhat socially unacceptable. You know, like most people aren't just going to like go into a public place and shoot heroin, you know, in front of everybody. There's some understanding that that's not, this is not something you do. And I think eventually we're going to get there with, with some of these, um, technologies because i think they really are harming not only our own health on an individual level but our ability to relate to other people they're harming our brains and how our brains function our creativity our sense of connection to the natural world you know it's big and i think it's one of the the lesser it's one it's a topic that hasn't received enough attention up until very recently do you do the same sort of um um, email delete for like a one day detox or a two day, a short, the shorter detoxes, or do you save those only for the long uh, I ones? I don't generally find that that's necessary for the shorter ones. Um, but it might be a fun experiment, but like say, to get yourself, um, like I was just thinking about myself doing it. And remember the conversation we had about baby steps. Like mm-hmm. if you're, if I'm feeling anxious about doing it for a week, maybe start with a day and say, you know, like, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Right. Cause I'm thinking about my next week. Actually, I've, I'm going to be on, on a, I mean, I don't ever, I, it's funny. I don't ever take these breaks that you're talking about, or I don't ever announce that I'm taking breaks. I do take breaks, right. but right. I don't ever tell anybody right. that I'm taking a break. Yeah. And so I'm thinking yeah. right now, what if I were to put on that autoresponder from the 26th until the second, and I started having little nervous pangs as right. we were talking about it. Like, what am I missing? Yeah. What, right. Yeah. And what, what, you know, should, what are people going to think if they get that email from me? And, FOMO. Um, you know but, what? I'll tell you what people think. Cause p- people respond to that email later. I've actually had people, several people, every time I do a digital detox, several people will go out of their way to email me when I get back and say, wow, you've totally inspired me. I'm going to start doing that. Like people feel liberated when they see that because like every, it sucks. Yeah. Nobody likes that. Nobody likes that feeling. Chris, would you be willing to share the language that you use on your email? Like send it to me or maybe I could put, put it on our, on the podcast notes or um, yeah, is that too personal? I or? have it in my autoresponder. It's pretty short and sweet. Um, I can probably even just tell you right now. Um, 
So this last one was, thanks for writing. I'll be off the grid from November 25th to December 3rd and won't be checking email. I'm not even going to try to get through the avalanche of messages that will await me on my return. Life is too short. If you need to reach me, please send your message again after December 4th. If you need something right away, you can contact my assistant, um, you know, whose yeah. name and email I won't give here. But yeah, yeah, that's yeah what it does it's great it's great I, i'm gonna try it i'm absolutely gonna try it next great. week i you know if it's for 24 hours it's it's a baby step um yeah but, absolutely and you know, i think i'd love to hear how it goes for you because um i i almost everyone i've i've turned on to this has said that it's been among you know the most restorative rejuvenative thing that they've done so it doesn't mean you don't have to check your email either it's interesting like you you still could if you don't you know, if you're that nervous you about could. it, but, but I you don't, but I wouldn't respond. Right. But right. You could, you could, yeah, cause nobody's going to know that, but, right. but yeah, I mean, right. you could still be sort of off duty, so to speak sure. and, and telling people you're not available, but checking and reading emails. I mean, I know some people who do that independently from a digital detox. Um, for example, maybe they're going and they're writing their book and they know that they need time that's interruption free. And so they put an autoresponder uh -huh. like that on their thing, but I know they're still kind of checking and right. making sure everything's okay. Cause yep. they're not really on a vacation or a detox. They're just needing time to focus more. Yep. So yep. I think that's a valid approach too, but I definitely encourage people to actually do the digital detox. Yep. And you know, many, I was so, deeply affected by it when I first did it. I mean, what it, for me, it was just like, it was a revelation. It was like, I didn't realize how affected I was by the constant use of the technology until I got away from it. It's kind of, it's like anything else, you know, you do like a challenge, a 30 day diet challenge. Yeah. You didn't realize how much you're affected by the crappy food you were eating until right. you actually stopped eating it. Yeah. Right. You know? Right. It's, it's, it's these, I think there's a way in which doing these, these challenges or these detoxes that really, brings things into clarity and focus that just that we can't achieve in our day-to-day -day world, you right. know, without stepping outside of it. Chris, thank you so much. I, um, I'm just looking at the time. I want to be respectful for, you know, you, you've been more than generous with the amount of time you spent with me and I really, really appreciate it. I, um, I think what you're doing is so important. And, uh, like I said earlier, your willingness to tackle this problem you know, which sends most people into, you know, like me, the, 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 the <laughs> God throw up the hands, no idea. How do it, you know, yeah. I give up. Right. And I think just the way you've done it and the clarity that we, you've brought and the light you've brought to the, to this world, this part of the, this part of the world, it's kind of in darkness. Um, I, I just am very grateful for, and I really appreciate all that you do. Well, I, I, I appreciate your feedback, Andy. It means a lot to me. And uh, thanks for all the work that you're doing in the world to bring this conversation forward. And uh, we'll definitely get the word out when, when this goes up. Because I think, um, you know, I've, I really enjoyed in particular talking uh, about health coaching with you and how, how different um, that uh, role is from what most people understand. And I'm excited to share that with my, uh, my audience as I'm, well. I'm very excited about that. I, I, uh, I'm going to, I, yeah, we, we have, we have to continue that conversation cause, uh, um, cool. yeah, really excited. That's really cool. Really cool. Well, uh, okay. if people um, have right. questions for you, are you available? Do you tweet, do you Twitter, do you Instagram? Where do they, where do they find you? Um, well, uh, 
part of my strategy for minimum for self-care is not actually using social media much ah, myself, okay. but I, I am on Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash Chris Kresser. I find that to be the least intrusive of all of the, the various social media outlets. So yep. that's the one I, I do use a little bit. Um, and I do have Facebook page and Instagram and all that stuff, but I'll, I'll tell you a secret. It's, uh, my team mostly does that. Uh, for me and I'm not on there using it. So right, right. it's not a good place to communicate with me directly. Twitter is probably the best bet for that. And then, you know, my website, chriscresser.com and cresserinstitute.com is my training um, organization where we train doctors in the approach that I'm talking about. And then next year, uh, health coaches as well. Very, very cool. Well, thanks again. And um, I look forward to continuing the conversation. Great. Thank you, Andy. Take care. The Whole Life Podcast is produced by our podcast team, Winslow Jenkins, Becca Borowski, and Ernie Hurtado. You can find all of our episodes, links, and complete show notes at wholelifechallenge.com forward slash podcast. The way that I've found is the best way to listen to podcasts is to subscribe so that episodes automatically get delivered right to your mobile device. You can do that in any podcast app on your phone. And hey, if you like the podcast, please do me a favor. Go to iTunes and give it a five-star rating and recommend it to your friends. I'm Andy Petronic, and thanks so much for listening. Listening.